You're listening to the Owner Build podcast, where each week, Paul Hemming from C-Link interviews experts on how small and medium-sized developers can level up their business through intelligent construction management. Hello and welcome to episode 21, my lucky number of the Own the Build podcast with me, Paul Hemming, and my mate, Liam Curley. Big question on everyone's lips. Liam, what's happening in your life today? <laughs> well, I'm pretty sad. I used to be your good friend, but now I'm mate. I, I, I feel, I feel that's a downgrade. You have, to, you have to understand, Liam, I spend a lot of time with you, so my emotions towards you fluctuate. And at the moment, yeah, I've downgraded you. All right, fair enough. <laughs> nothing, nothing special. But why, why twenty-one? What's your, what, what, why is that your lucky number? It's a bit stupid. I got three lucky numbers: seven, fourteen, and twenty-one. I just love the seven, seven times table. Basically, I don't, I don't know what, why. But right. I, what, what's wrong? What's wrong with twenty-eight? Yeah, once it's, uh, I, I didn't know that was. Is that seven times four? Is it? <laughs> that's that's far, oh, far too complicated. Worrying for me. a quantity surveyor, isn't it? <laughs> you know me, mate. You know me. Anyway, so. Today, our episode is not only a lucky number of mine, but it is also a topic for most people that is relevant, but still remains quite abstract. At least that's how I feel about it. So we're going to be talking about BIM and more specifically BIM for SMEs. Is it even relevant for SMEs? And I'm very pleased to welcome today the best dressed guest of all time on Own the Build. I know this is a podcast, this is only audio, but he is suave as anything. Uh, Ian Miskimmin of Bentley Systems. Ian is a real guru of all things BIM, and we're delighted to have him on the show. How are you, Ian? Very well, thank you very much. Really well today. Enjoying the warmth and the ability to come along and talk to you guys today, from a, especially from a perspective that of uh, a topic that I'm very passionate about. Yeah, I remember talking to you previously about it, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, diving into it in a little bit more detail. But for for a bit of context, Ian, and and, and for the sake of all of our listeners, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, your experience, and your role at Bentley and in the water sector. Well, um, I'm a man of many, many hats. Uh, I work part-time for Bentley Systems, have done now uh, for 20 years since yesterday. So I've been there for a very long time and I'm in a a very... Happy anniversary. Thank you very much. It's been a a really good time, actually. Um, And I think it's culminated in the role that I do now, which is enviable by many people around the world. And I think it's quite unique. My remit from the big boss, Mr. Bentley himself, is do the right thing. Um, so if it means going off and helping an organization get their BIM strategy right, or perhaps going and getting involved in the STEM organizations and initiatives through the Bloodhound Supersonic Car, or just going off and, and helping a, a government to um, look at how they're going to do innovation in the future. If it's the right thing, and I feel it's the right thing for me to do, then he's happy to back me up. So that's the mandate. Do the do the right, do the right thing. thing, and I think that is almost should be a mandate for everybody. Um, you know, in everything we do, we should think about: is it the right thing to do? And if it is, get on and do it. Excellent, excellent. And 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 how how 
How did you get into them, of all things? I mean, I'm a QS, and, and people can people can point their fingers at me and ask me how I got into that, but I'm not going to answer those questions. I'm going to ask you, Ian. Wow. How, how did you get into them, man? So, so, you, so you got seduced by the dark side and got dragged into QSing uh, by the Darth Vader and the, uh, uh, yes, <laughs> and the evil parts of the Empire, I can tell. But no, I... Um, I think like I got involved in uh, infrastructure right from the very beginning by complete accident. It's a, a stupidly long story out in New Zealand, uh, which involved some um, hallucinogenic berries, a conservation engineer, and somebody saving my life. So I, I paid them back by doing work on roads, tracks, bridges, and things like that, and, and got thoroughly hooked on infrastructure. But uh, the way I got into the, I suppose, the, the, the Bentley world was once again another, another accident altogether. I turned up for a, an interview looking to do more infrastructure work. And um, after a few minutes conversation, they decided that perhaps the CV in front of them wasn't mine. And it wasn't. It was completely the wrong CV. I know nothing about coding computers, JavaScript, or anything like that. And so we just got chatting about what I do know and what I do love and, and, and enjoy. And a couple of uh, hours later, they gave me a job, which was pretty... Uh, uh, of BIM. Is that what we're getting at? You're, you're a lover. Well... Yeah, yeah. They were looking for somebody to, to look at information and collaboration and how we should better structure data for construction, engineering, owner-operating things. And then push comes to shove. Over the years, I've been doing various jobs along those lines. And um, I had another uh, slight hiccup uh, back in 2012. I was just coming back from doing some of the security for the Olympic Games. And um, I was walking past the office uh, when Greg and Andrew Wollstonehome, who was in charge of um, Crossrail, of course, were having a conversation about how they could improve the education and the BIM, the information management world for the Crossrail project. And I just happened to be passing the office at the wrong time, got called in and they said, you're going to do it. You're going to run the Crossrail Information Management Academy. I want you to become everything you need to know about BIM. And so it just started from there getting involved in the government BIM tasks groups, getting involved in all the BIM4 groups. It was really good fun uh, and thoroughly enjoyable. Amazing. I've smacked my head against a brick wall quite a lot over the years, um, and I've become a lot more, I suppose, uh, cynical and pessimistic a little bit about our industry. But I think, you know, if we can do some good things, we've now got the knowledge to move forward, even if we haven't got the culture or the energy to move forward. In, in, interesting. That's that. I guess that leads really nicely onto one of the thi- onto the topic of the conversation because it sounds like you've got real, really amazing experience, knowledge, and know-how. Uh, perhaps at like the larger tier one organisations, you talk about project like Crossrail and so on. Now we, although we have a breadth of uh, listeners to the podcast, we Liam and I uh, specifically work a lot with um, SMEs, and we uh, our business is about SMEs and so on. And over ninety nine percent of construction companies in the UK are SMEs. In fact, it's something absurd, like ninety nine point six five percent of every construction company in the UK is an SME. And I rarely, if ever speak to a client of ours who is in the SME sphere who says, 
God, I've been using beer, man. It has rocked my world. And it isn't the year 2000 now, Ian. It's the year 2021. So why is that? Why are, people, why are Crossrail and those big jobs using it? And why aren't the SMEs using it? Well, my experience of the smaller um, medium enterprise sort of businesses are, is very much from my other job. One of the other hats that I wear is I run an innovations program uh, for the construction industry. It was born out of the DTI back in 2003, I think it was. Uh, and basically, Commit organization is all about getting innovations, improving productivity and digitizing the smaller end of the construction market. So dealing with people who don't build massively, they don't deal build cross rails, but they build houses or industrial parks or estates or things like that. Um, and so getting to understand what makes them tick and what makes them change has been something that has been in my mind for uh, you know over a decade now. In hours as well. <laughs> well, and it's a it's a really interesting um, proposition because those those organizations, they're almost like a cottage industry in the fact that they are relatively isolated. They work alone in a lot of their worlds. They don't record a lot of things. They don't work specifically to a lot of guidelines. There are laws and regulations, fire safety and things like that they have to do. But a lot of the other stuff is very much what makes them a profit. And so when you talk to any organization like that, you can't go in and talk about the crossrails. You can't go in and talk about the big industry side of things, or you can't go in and talk to them about noughts and ones and schemas and spreadsheets and geeky 3D pretty pictures. Waste of time. What you've got to do is go in and talk about the value proposition. And I think that's where we as an industry and we as a BIM community have failed dismally. We are not talking business language to business people, and we are not giving them clear guidance of how they can make more money because, let's face it, that's the way it's going. If I went to a, um, uh, a small construction organization and said, how do we change things? Well, you can't just wish for change and you can't really run things at that size for the cottage industry from government. So what are we going to do? Well, we've got to improve their profits because that's where their concentration is through their shareholders, through their investment uh, companies. They want a return on their investment. So therefore, uh, and, and, quick, and quickly, which, which and is quickly, maybe more, which is, more differently. So yeah. we've got to get there in the first place and actually talk to them in a language that they understand and make them feel that the BIM world, the BIM methodologies and processes aren't just for big organizations uh, to make uh, social change in the world, which they are in certain circumstances, but they're there to help them be more productive, more profitable, and in the end, uh, be able to deliver a better quality product to their the people they're going to sell it to. So they can sell it for more money. Simple as that. And I think we're always getting into the wrong places with these people. And we've got to talk that business language. We've got to talk about things like risk. Okay. BIM is all about risk. It's all about managing that risk. Okay. It's all about how we can monitor it and how we can measure it and then how we can reduce it. And we do that through the information 
in the BIM world, whether that's information in a 3D model and we're putting together a sequence to work out how to build something, or whether it's information about um, uh, various how to, to build things or the, uh, the golden thread that goes through things. It's all about that risk. And if you talk to an investor, somebody who's going to invest money in your organization, if you show them that you have reduced the risk to their investment, the chances are they're going to charge you less percentage profit because their risk is less on lending you the money. But again, so I am a, I'm a simple Q, I'm a simple QS who doesn't know. Okay. <laughs> I'll put it in a really simple term. Yeah. All right. When you learned to drive, your insurance was quite high. Yep. Because they looked at you and said you're a risk. The insurance companies could put a black box into the cab of your vehicle to monitor whether you were taking risks, whether you were doing donuts, accelerating hard, whether you were braking too hard, whether you're breaking the speed limit. And if they saw you were taking a lot of risks, they charged you more money. But if you weren't taking risks, then they would charge you less money. So think about this not only on an investment terms, so I might be charging you 5% interest rate on my investment rather than 10, 12%. But think of it also on the um, the insurance terms. So you're taking less risk, therefore I'm going to charge you less money. So therefore you're going to make more profit. No, I, I, I understood it. Can I, can I ask a question as well? Like a real mm. simple, lame in lame for, you know, from a, a non-construction expert, if you like. So in layman's terms, how do you explain what BIM is to an audience who... They know they've they've seen the acronym, but that's that's all it is to that's, them. That's a vital question number one. I, I so that would be the first. Yeah, the first question. Ian, how would you simply explain? So the easiest way to explain BIM to anybody is by talking about Google. Okay, think of the internet. Right, the internet is loads of different servers, lots of different databases, lots of different websites, lots of information on it. And what you've got is you've got a Google interface. You ask a plain language question into the interface, and it goes off to all those servers and all those databases, collects the information that you require, and presents it back to you so you can make a decision or carry out a task. It might be something as simple as replacing a washer on a tap. But that's it. That's what we're doing with BIM. You've got lots of different databases about finances, about engineering information, about maintenance information, about materials, about consumables, about equipment. And you ask a plain language question of that information and it will come back with an answer. But there are two really big differences. Firstly, you could be able to trust what you see out of BIM. That's a massive word, trust, because we waste a huge amount of time and money searching for and validating information, just making sure that we can trust it. Okay. The latest figures for that are around about 80% of an engineer's time is wasted searching for and validating information. 80%. That's four days. On BIM. No, all over. So if you just said to an engineer, right, find me the information how to maintain that and go off and maintain it, it would take them four days to find the information, make sure they've got everything, revalidate it because they don't trust it, and then go out and do the job than it would do otherwise. So it's a, it's a massive inefficiency there. The other thing, of course, is that searching for information. So instead of when you get a return from Google and you get a thousand answers from Google and you don't know which one 
is actually relevant to you. BIM will give you the ones relevant to you, your role and the job that you're carrying out, and it's giving you information you can trust. So what do we do here? It's like having a, an Alexa. You press the button and go, Alexa, I'm going to be two days late delivering this stuff on site. What's the schedule uh, problems with that? And it's going to come back and it's going to tell you what needs to be done, who needs to be contacted, what bits of the contract you might be breaking, what equipment will be on site, your hire areas might change, the materials might not arrive on time or they might have spoiled on site, the concrete might have gone off by then. All this information is all really valuable to the people building that building. But at the moment, it's in lots of different servers, in lots of different databases, controlled by lots of different people who've got no idea what to do about bringing it all together. So to describe it in really simple terms, it's Google for your assets, but you can trust it and you know exactly what's going to come up in front of you. Right. So then um, again, so if I am, which I am really, uh, somebody that uh, is, is new to it and let's say from a developer background or basically a, a non-construction uh, background, I'm thinking, okay, so this is data for construction. This is instead of using purely human intuition, I um, can use BIM, which is going to introduce data to help me make better decisions. Yeah. Yeah. So it's all about uh, decision making and action taking, you know, making sure that you can actually do both of those things quickly and assuredly and know that it's going to be right in real time. And when you know you can do those sort of things, you can do things much safer on a construction site. You can do it with less waste and carbon impact. You can do it without overrunning time and effort with certain people getting equipment on site. So you drive down the costs. There is a whole raft of things that you can do just by having good quality information in front of you without having to go off and search for it and then having to regenerate it or revalidate it afterwards. And I think it's, it's that value proposition that we've missed because when you've sat through any BIM presentation, I can guarantee it, um, you'll see this wonderful 3D pretty picture spinning around in front of you on the presentation. And they'll go, wow, look at this. Isn't it wonderful? And it'll just be, oh, yeah, it's wonderful, but it's not relevant to me because I'm the person who just does the electrics. Well, that's precisely what I want to get into. And that's that value proposition. I'm going to ask you about it. But right after this break. I wanted to take a quick break from the show to share a message from our sponsor, C-Link. C-Link is software designed to streamline the process of subcontract procurement. It's a platform that helps SME developers and main contractors stay agile whilst replicating the commercial scale and savvy of large contractors. If you want to save a guaranteed minimum 5% against budget construction costs on your next project, head to www.get.c-link.com slash podcast to find out more. If you're driving or working out right now and didn't catch that URL, don't sweat it. We've included the link in the description box for this episode. Now let's get back to the show. (laughs) 
Right then, so now we're going to get tricky, tricky, tricky. I feel like we've got to a point where I understand much more the value and understand in simple layman's terms the Google analogy that actually really does help me to understand. I hope I think it'll actually help a lot of people to understand it in a in a simple way. Now you're talking about value proposition. I can get the value proposition for Crossrail. What I struggle to understand is the value proposition for clients that I work with who are doing, say, 10 apartments. They're doing like a couple of three million pound builds a a year, something like that. How do they get value from it or can't they? Can you, before you go into that one though, Paul, again, because I'm speaking from the point where I don't know much about, you know, my background is in small, is in SME. Um, work so before you even get to that from what you just told me there it seems yeah i don't i I should if i'm if i'm if i am a developer or or a contractor i should be doing that so before you get into value proposition to me it seems obvious i should what is the assumption why wouldn't i well i think the lot of the problem you've got there is that you're already making profits as a developer and why would you change that's the question. And that's the question we've had for not only the the, the smaller organizations, but for the bigger ones as well. In fact, there's a, a huge proportion of the projects that are being delivered around the world from major contractors that aren't using BIM methodologies or they're just paying lip service to it because you're already making a profit and the construction industry as a whole has a very small profit margin. We know that it's around about two to three percent. And if you're going to take a risk, okay and start changing things you're not going to start changing things at the potential cost of that two to three percent risk so we've got to actually wind all this lot right from the very back and actually start looking at the money and the contracts that are let right at the very beginning when you're looking at contractors but on the um the smaller side you've got to think about how we deliver faster how we deliver with better quality how we deliver a better end product that is assured for the people who need to live in them. So why do we build houses in the first place? Okay, so the developer wants to build houses to make money. But there's another reason we build houses. It's to build society so we can supply people to work in various industries or wherever that might be in that location so they can house their families and to support the society that they live in. And so what we really need to do is improve how that quality is delivered and how we can make sure that the repeatability is the same each time. So you're not gambling on that 2 to 3% profit. You're guaranteeing 25% every time. And if you can do that, that's where we win. And we can't do that by using the same old methods because we've been using the same old methods for the last 100 years almost. And what are we getting? We're still just getting 2 to 3% tops. If I'm an investor, do I want 2 to 3%? No, I don't. I want at least 10% profit on my uh, investment. And I want to be able to guarantee that every time I put money in the pot. So I think we've got to look at that but we've also got to look at things like um the recent uh, the hackett report and the grenfell fire in that being able to track not only 
the materials right from the very beginning. That's all part of BIM, being able to understand where they're procured from, where they were stored, where they were transported, when they were installed, who installed them, how they installed them, why they were designed specific, specified in the first place. All those decisions and all about those materials are in that BIM system as such. And that worries me about the house building world is because we've had this massive disaster. We've had the report that comes out and says, you must do this, otherwise we're going to have more of this. And yet there's a resounding silence from many of the house builders out there. If a disaster like that has happened, and that's not enough to make a change, that makes me very sad for that industry. But if that's not the way we can make change, then the only way we can make change then is by increasing the profit margins uh, and lower the risk for those people building the housing market. So I'm not a great fan of them. Uh, I'm, I'm as much of a fan as, as I am of QSs. Uh, oh, come on. <laughs> I, know, I thought you said you, I was all right. <laughs> well, some QSs are okay. <laughs> Some of them are um, right, but but I, you know, in all honesty, if the only way we can get things to change is through money, then that's the way we've got to do it, because we can't play on their better nature. We can't play on the fact that they need to improve society. The only way we can do things is by lowering the risk and increasing the bottom line. So if I'm a an SME developer, and I say, Ian, come on, come in, you're going to do the right thing. Come and sit in my business for a week and show me what you would do regarding BIM that will help me take steps towards reducing my risk and increase my profit. All right. Well, first things first, you've got to see what the uh, what the business strategy is in the first place, because information itself has got very little value unless you can see a line of sight between that piece of information and the business decision, the outcome, the objective that you're actually trying to achieve. And it's uh, a series of work I've been doing recently with various organizations is by taking their business strategy and tracking it all the way through to individual pieces of information. So understanding that this piece of information here assures me that we're going to achieve that particular objective in the, uh, maybe it's a government strategy, maybe it's the CEO's strategy, maybe it's the, uh, the president of the organization's strategy. But if I can tie those two together, then I've got a definitive value for that piece of information. And I need to make sure that we record it, um, that we manage it, and then we disseminate that piece of information to the right people to demonstrate its value. So that's the, you know, the first point within there. And then that helps the IT departments, because when you give BIM the... I haven't got an IT department. I'm only, I'm only an SME. Like, oh, well. I'm tiny. I've got, I've got five or ten bodies max. So you might have two or three systems in there, one that does your finances, one that does your equipment register, one that pays your team, um, one where you've got your ordering account. Um, and you might think initially that you've got to try and link all these things together to actually um, get that full BIM experience. But if you go through that exercise of the line of sight, right from the very big outcomes all the way through to the individual pieces of information, you only have to expose those one or two pieces of information to get an instant business value out of the proposition. Because what you're doing is you are demonstrating that the business is on target to achieve 
those objectives. And if you've got shareholders, what does that do? Well, it gives them assurance that you're on target to produce a profit for that year. And if you can assure them that there's profit, you're going to get investors and et cetera, et cetera, onwards and upwards. Yeah, another profit and so on. Et cetera, et cetera. So that's, that's kind of like one of the first points is looking at the business information management. Okay. So that's a BIM sort of acronym, but it's the business side that you need to, to understand. The second part is to actually find out where your problems are. What are the things that are costing you money? What are the things that are costing you in health and safety? What are the, the, the site issues? What's really causing you to only achieve 2 to 3% rather than 20%? And I can guarantee that a lot of that will be through things like wastage. Purely, people are designing something, yet when you're on site, you're actually not designing, uh, or sorry, you're not constructing what is being designing. If you look at uh, a good percentage of people like plumbers and electricians, they just make it up as they go along. I mean, in all honesty, they do. They get given a drawing that it's got to go from A to B, and the drawing puts it in a nice, lovely pattern all the way through there, and they're just going to go the shortest route on site. But we know that design is really important. So we've got to actually design earlier, put the money up front, so we're making mistakes, making changes before we get onto site, because site problems and corrections are so expensive whereas doing them in a design office is cheap it's like nasa okay instead of going up and trialing things up on the space station they get the astronauts into a water tank and they trial things out there because it's a lot cheaper if something goes wrong same thing with construction we waste so much materials i mean it's a question for you you're the qs Oh, don't percentage do wise, I ask the questions. <laughs> percentage wise, how much materials are wasted on a construction site on average? I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that depending on what it is, I mean, I used to, we used to, I used to work in cladding and uh, insulation. We used to throw away 10, 20% of insulation. It was just flying out. And that's, that's a small amount. Um, many years ago, when we were doing the commit world, we did an uh, investigation into this. It was, must have been 2004, 2005, and it was around about 70% of the materials that were brought onto site were skipped at the end of the day because they were either cut too short, they were um, you know, damaged, they weren't put in right, they weren't ordered correctly, they were unpacked and put in the rain, or they were all sorts of things. And all of that can be designed out right from the very beginning. If you read the new government constructions playbook, you think it sounds like it's supposed to be for the, for the you know, really expensive projects, but it's not. There are real nuggets in there for uh, the smaller, organizations and if you look around the, the house developing side they really need to get into dfmla which is design for manufacturer logistics and uh, assembly now think of it if you will like an ikea for buildings okay um you know you're not going to well, okay so sometimes at the end of an ikea build you have a a washer or a nut that you've got no idea where it comes from i always do <laughs> but <laughs> You don't waste that much materials, okay? It's easy to transport into wherever you want it to do. You construct it with very little expertise on the construction site. You don't need to be a mechanical engineer to put together a flat pack set of, set of chest of drawers or a desk or whatever it might be because the instructions are all there. Um, and we do this with our buildings 
Uh, there's a company out there that have been doing this for buildings for a very long time. They've been doing it for factory complexes as well. And the fact that they design it so it can be shipped in a container on site, the things can come out at the right moment so they're not damaged by weather or whatever it might be or during transportation. And when they get there, they are constructed and each joint and each part has got a little QR code on it. You scan the QR code with your phone and it shows you a 3D simulation of how to insert that thing and how to put it together. Amazing. And one of the really cool things about it is it's designed so you can assemble it from the ground upwards. Okay, so there's no working at height. So literally you build it and you shift it up. You build it and you shift it up. And each time there are panels for buildings. So the electrics have all been put in inside a factory, which means you can repeat the same house, or the same room time and time again. Now, this isn't a new concept. You must have heard of a guy called Pugin. I haven't actually. No? Oh, really famous architect. He was the architect for the Houses of Parliament. Okay, Westminster Palace. But he was also a very famous architect that looked at function. Okay, so houses nowadays are a box and you try and cram whatever rooms into that box. What he came up with was the fact that you had rooms and you worked out which rooms you wanted to fulfill the function of your house. And then you built a wall around the outside. So the house looked slightly strange on the outside, but everything flowed into the right room and you had the right things that you wanted in the first place. You just didn't try and cram something into a, into a rabbit hutch, which seems to be the problem we have out there. So worth having a look at Pugin and, and, and looking at what he does, because that was the sort of the forefront of that design for manufacturer logistics and assembly. He got it right. We ignored him for 200 years because this is, you know, back in the 1800s. And now suddenly we're coming back to this because we have all that information. BIM enables that because we've got the tools to do the design in the virtual world. We've got the tools to understand the sequencing, the events, the materials, link everything together for the manufacturing and for the logistics. And then the ability to have that information available as you assemble something. And then, hey, you've already got that information already. So why not hand that over to the end user? So the person who buys the house knows how it's being constructed and also knows how to amend things and maintain things and operate things into the future. I have to say, Ian, uh, you are an excellent advocate for, for beer. I, I, lo I love the passion and the energy that you have. And, and, and so you, you would, if going back to my question where I brought you into my business, I'm an SME, and what you would you would ask is where are the problems that keep on repeating themselves so you make a really nice m and &E example you're redoing m and &E on site let's do that off-site let's do it as a desk study in the office that's a simple way we can uh, reduce delays etc etc there's also um yeah i was going to say it's going to be different for every organization so what 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 affects your business is going to be different from affecting somebody else's business there are going to be similar themes in there but how it's affecting it will always be different. So therefore, there isn't um, a one size fits all in here. So you're going to have to really go in and find out what are the things that are causing you trouble and not allowing you to make a really decent risk-free profit and then fix them using information. And I guarantee information or the lack of information or lack of trusted information is probably the root source of all those problems. 
Okay, and so we are close, excruciatingly close to the end of this of this uh, episode. I, I could talk forever to you, Ian, but so so I, I'm picturing it now. I'm picturing a better world for my business using BIM. How much is it going to cost me? Very quickly. How am I going to be able to do it? How do I do it? And I don't say just employ me because I know you, you work part time. We can't get enough of it. Put, so. put your checkbook away, quite frankly, because most of the things that you need to do are cultural changes. OK, yes, you need information systems. Yes, you need somebody who takes responsibility for information. So whether that's a BIM manager or a BIM person, doesn't matter what you call them, but it's somebody who takes responsibility. People need to trust information. Okay, I'm going to buy information from you and you're going to sell information to me. If I can't trust that information, it's not worth me buying it. Okay, so therefore you need to have somebody who takes responsibility for that information using standards, using whatever it is that they enforce it with. So having somebody employing somebody who's an information manager, whether it's for a couple of hours a week, doesn't matter. You need somebody who takes that responsibility and understands the importance and the value of information. So I could do that. I could I could employ someone as on a consultancy basis, contract them in for a few hours per week, start to get an understanding of how BIM works and how it can positively impact my business. Yeah. And that would be a really simple first step before. Yeah. And I think that the problem is people think that it's a 3D pretty picture and they go off and buy an expensive CAD platform and they go, well, actually, all I'm doing is producing houses again and again and again. And that 3D pretty picture, it's very little value to me. So don't buy a massively expensive system. Go and find something cheap. 3D is really important. Much that I malign it, okay, I'm a big advocate of doing 3D for most things because being able to design out problems, look at sequencing, look at safety and all the quality stuff, you've got to do it in 3D because the world itself is in 3D. But don't go and buy an all singing or dancing platform. A lot of the freebie 3D platforms out there will do it just as well, really. I mean, I know, you know, coming from the, the Bentley world, People will, uh, you know, go and wash your mouth out with soap and water. But that's the truth. In honesty, don't buy it if you don't need it. So, so, so I am, what I'm taking from this is, BIM, there is a world of opportunities to de-risk and increase my margin using BIM. Yeah. A simple way to start that process would be to um, get a consultant or some, some, something of that nature to start Have doing that advice. and understand it more. Yeah, get, just get some advice. advice. And then, and then I'm going to say, because I haven't asked you hardly any of the questions I wanted to ask you today, we'll have to, we'll have to get you back to explore in more detail and you'll have to wait for the next episode of Own the Build with Ian for us to explore it in more detail. But I have to say that has educated me a lot more on the topic. I will, we'll be putting some details about Ian in the podcast description and, uh, yeah, it's been wonderful to have you on here. And it's been really, uh, really, really good. And uh, I've definitely learned something. I don't know about you, Liam. How are you feeling oh, about it? Yeah, we need to get Ian back. There's so many questions. Um, and I'm going to I'm gonna have to work away. this in one episode now. Yeah, I'm going to have to smarten up when he next comes on. Oh, you're going to have to, because quite frankly, you're letting the side down completely. <laughs> uh, I mean, the fact that you've not even had a shave this morning is just shocking. Um, oh, I actually did have a shave, but I've just, it's design and stubble. Yeah. This is what oh, us QSs well, do, well, you know, are we wrong? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been an absolute pleasure. It really has. Thank you very much for having me on board today. It's been really good fun. Thank you. It's been, it's been great to have you. And um, 
a, a little note for our listeners if you want to um if you want to get in touch if you want to send curls a, a lovely message if you want to tell him how much you love him just like the rest of us do feel free to drop me a line if you want to um have any suggestions we'd love to hear from you it's uh paul at c-link.com and until next week it's goodbye from me and curls goodbye from me too see you, <laughs> goodbye from him. <laughs> <laughs> see you gents see thanks you, so yeah. much bye. 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 Bye.